The province of Newfoundland is a sparsely populated area full of forests and beautiful coastal regions. The picturesque small towns hugging the rocky shorelines carry a strong sense of community hard to find anywhere else. However, the sparse population and vast wilderness makes for a province with missing persons cases which far exceed the rest of Atlantic Canada. For this episode, I will be telling you about two disappearance cases from the province of Newfoundland that have left me with so many questions. First, I'll be telling you about the disappearance of Daniel Pickett, and following that, you will hear about the suspicious vanishing of Trevor Hamlin. So get ready, because things are about to get shady. two sisters, Mary and Delora, an older brother named Patrick, and his twin brother, Dennis. Growing up, Daniel had a reputation for being the most vibrant and charismatic person at any party. His sister, Alora, said that he lit up the room from the moment he stepped in, and he had people roaring laughing all the time. After finishing school in Fogo Island, Daniel started working on a fishing boat. Throughout his upbringing, Daniel, along with the rest of his family, spent a lot of time around fishing vessels, out on boats, or by the seaside, so it made sense that this lifestyle would carry forward into Daniel's career. Daniel started working on a ship called the Newfoundland Tradition. While working on the Tradition, Daniel would go out on fishing excursions that would have him out at sea for multiple days at a time. Despite his constant movement, Daniel never failed to find a way to get in contact with his family as soon as he made it to port. Since this was the early 2000s, Daniel didn't have a cell phone, so his contact with family members was pretty much restricted to the breaks between fishing excursions. Whenever Daniel's team made it to port, he would find a way to call his twin brother. He would also usually talk with his parents and sometimes his other siblings. He always ended the call by telling him that he would see them soon and that he loved them all. In October of 2006, Daniel was out working on the Newfoundland tradition and the crew was set to dock in the southern section of the St. John's Harbor. The tradition crew arrived in port midday on the 24th of October. Daniel, along with two other crewmates, headed out to hit up George Street, a well-known location with a vast number of bars and nightclubs. George Street is known as the go-to location if you want to have a good time in St. John's. That evening, the three called a cab and headed out to a place called the Cotton Club, a strip club that was located along George Street. From the Cotton Club, Daniel and his crewmates headed up George Street to a club called Turkey Joe's. Next, they headed to yet another location called Club One. Around 10.45pm, while at Club One, Daniel made the phone call to his brother that he made every time he was in port. The phone conversation was pretty normal, but according to his sister, Laura, 
Daniel did sound pretty anxious during the call, but nothing he said was out of the ordinary. The conversation ended with Daniel's typical, tell mom and dad I love them and I will see you all soon, and that he loved his brother as well. From there, the group went back to Turkey Joe's. While there, he told the other guys he was with he was meeting up with some girl, but he never really told them anything about her. Daniel was last seen heading back to the Cotton Club on his own. At this time, his crewmates were headed back to the ship for the night. The next day, Daniel was set to catch a bus to Clarenville at 1pm, but he never made it to that bus. When Daniel failed to make it to the bus, a missing persons report was placed on him almost immediately. Daniel's family traveled down to St. John's to work on the search effort. They figured that if the search began early, they would locate him pretty easily. When searches began, the first step was to look into where he had gone that night. From the beginning of this investigation, it was believed that Daniel may have fallen overboard on his way back to the Newfoundland tradition. A member of Daniel's crew contacted his family to say that he had left behind his wallet and watch on the boat. When police went to collect any potential evidence from the boat, they managed to get Daniel's wallet, but his watch was missing. When talking to the crew, investigators were told that no one had seen Daniel return to the ship that evening, and they had no reason to believe that anything bad happened to him around the Newfoundland tradition. Daniel's family began pushing for investigators to conduct underwater searches. If he had fallen overboard, the likelihood that he would be found in water searches drastically decreased with every change in tide. One week after Daniel was reported missing, the investigators finally decided to carry out that search, but his mother said that this search came one week too late, a statement that I have to agree with. Like I said, the odds that you find a body in a harbor falls every time the tides change. As the water flows out to the open ocean, there is always a chance that a body could be carried out to the open ocean, and then locating the body becomes nearly impossible. However, the thoughts of what happened to Daniel began to shift amongst his family. This started with his sister, Alora. She stated that she thought it made no sense that Daniel fell into the water getting onto the boat. As I had mentioned before, Daniel spent his entire life around boats, and he knew his way around. Laura and now most of his other family members agree that him falling overboard didn't quite add up. Of course, accidents can happen to anyone, but I think it's worth taking into account when looking at this case. For a while, searches carried forward, but with no new leads arising, the case was growing cold. There were no potential suspects or evidence to point towards foul play, but there wasn't any evidence to point to what may have happened otherwise. The case was seemingly unsolvable. Then, on November 26th, something happened that would make the people of St. John's fear that there was something much more sinister going on than an accidental drowning. On the afternoon of Sunday, November 26th, 17-year-old Scott Dillon was walking through downtown St. John's on his way toward the Christmas parade happening that day. He had talked to his mother around 1pm and then headed out, but something happened along the way to the parade. That evening, when Scott failed to return home, his parents put out a missing persons report and searches for him began. 
Investigators requested information from the public to see if anyone had seen him that day. Scott was last reported in an area called Shea Heights in downtown St. John's, but somehow, even though it was the middle of the day in downtown, there were no further sightings of Scott. When the public heard about Scott's disappearance, the first thought that came to everyone's minds was that that he was the second young man to disappear from the St. John's area without a trace within the span of just one month. With the city on edge, the families of the disappeared continued to work tirelessly to bring home their sons, but time and time again, they came up short. Soon, snow began to fall, and the searches became much more complicated. It wasn't until the snow had melted in April of 2007 that something new would come forward in the cases. A young resident of Shea Heights was taking a walk through the woods in the area when he came across something very unexpected. Investigators were called to the scene where they found the body of a young male hidden in the bushes near a popular hangout area known as Beer Hill just off of Linegar Street in Shea Heights. When the body was collected and taken to the coroner's office, they were able to determine that the body found was that of 17-year-old Scott Dillon. Since Scott was a minor at the time, his full coroner's report hasn't been released to the public, but what we do know is that apparently foul play has been ruled out. So while the disappearance of two young men in the same city within a month of one another is incredibly unlikely, the two seem to have been unlinked. Just as hopes that Daniel's family would find closure with this new break in the case seemed to be dashed once more, another bit of information came forward coming from someone whose name you may recognize. In April of 2007, the RNC received a phone call from someone telling them where they may find evidence in the case of the disappearance of Daniel Pickett. The RNC was advised that they should search behind the Campbell's shipping supplies for evidence in the case, and the caller was Shelley Stokes. If you don't remember, Shelley Stokes is Newfoundland's renowned psychic and the woman who provided the tip which led investigators to the bodies of Dale Worthman and Kimberly Lockyer. When investigative teams went out to the location, they found two notable things, a Martak brand hat and a coat, both items that Daniel had been reportedly wearing on the evening of his disappearance. The items were collected and taken to the RNC headquarters, but since the scene lacked any blood or other signs of a struggle, police claimed that there was no reason to believe foul play was involved, and the items couldn't be forensically analyzed unless they had reason to believe that there was. So those items sat in a box of potential evidence for a potential case, and everything fell silent once again. At this point, Daniel's family believes that foul play is involved in his disappearance. They see nothing that points to him having fallen in the harbor, and they don't know why his clothing would have been left in a place that would have been along his walking route to return to the ship. The main thing that they keep coming back to is that no one knows anything about the woman he was supposedly meeting that night. 
No one knows what she looked like, her name, her address, or anything about her. Appeals to the public for information on her were made, but nothing ever came of it. We don't know if he ever truly met with her, how he knew her, or if she was even who he thought she was. This one confounding factor leaves this case so open-ended and ominous. This woman could have been dangerous, or had dangerous affiliations. She could have been a catfish. She could be completely unrelated to his disappearance. I mean, we don't even know if he met up with her that night. All we know is that one of his crewmates told us he planned on meeting up with some woman sometime that night. Another thing I can't get past is that the first mate told his family that his watch was left on the boat, but the watch was never recovered. What happened to that watch? Did someone just want the watch and decide to keep it? Did the first mate misidentify the watch as Daniel's when in reality it belonged to another member of the crew? It's just another thing that could be suspicious or it could be absolutely meaningless. The RNC looked into the potential of Daniel getting into a street fight that evening, but early on in the investigation it was ruled out. Today, we are no further along than the day the investigation started, but Daniel's family remains hopeful that one day they will figure out what happened to him back in October of 2006. The next case I'm going to tell you about takes us to Paradise, Newfoundland in 2018. Trevor Hamlin, also known as Pepsi, lived his entire life in Paradise, Newfoundland, a small town that is about a 20-minute drive from St. John's. Following his graduation from high school, Trevor began working in construction in the area and stuck with that job. In 2018, Trevor was 33 years old, and as it is with most small-town communities, he was known by almost everyone in the area, and he was a particularly well-known person due to his friendliness and gregarious nature. In 2018, Trevor made friends with a group of people that no one who was previously in his life knew anything about. Him and the group of unknown people would often hang out in the woods of the Paradise area. In June of 2018, Trevor was out hanging out with these unknown individuals in the woods, as he was often doing at the time. When he came back from the woods, he went to visit his sister, Ashley. When he arrived, Ashley immediately noticed something strange. Trevor had a large gash in his forearm, one that was large enough that it had her concerned. She ended up asking Trevor what happened to his arm, and he replied with a statement she was definitely a bit skeptical of. Trevor explained that he had received the cut on his arm because he was holding a log while his friend was chopping wood with an axe. While he was holding it, his friend accidentally had hit his arm. Ashley knew that Trevor spent a lot of time in the woods growing up. Their family was very outdoors-oriented, and he knew that you are never supposed to hold a log while someone is chopping wood. I mean, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a bad idea to hold something with a sharp object moving full force towards it. Whatever the cause, Trevor had received this wound on his arm while out with these unknown friends. On Saturday, June 16th of 2018, Trevor told his family that he was headed out to a party that day. 
In the afternoon, Trevor went to the local convenience store to pick up a bottle of Big 8 ginger ale and a bottle of Jameson whiskey. He then returned home for lunch. Around 3pm, Trevor's roommate saw him walking down Imogene Crescent, presumably headed out to do whatever else he had to do before going to the party. And as far as we know, this was the last time anyone ever saw Trevor. On June 19th, after trying to contact Trevor every day since the 16th, his family contacted the RNC to report Trevor missing. After his report came in, searches for Trevor began. When investigators searched Trevor's room, they found that his phone, wallet, and all of his IDs were left behind. Since the day he disappeared, Trevor's bank accounts have seen no activity. Investigators conducted interviews with over 30 of Trevor's neighbors, hoping that one of them may have some sort of information of value. But time and time again, they came up empty. The RNC made a public appeal to bring forward any footage from doorbell cams, dash cams, CCTV footage, or security cameras, but this didn't give much to go off of. There was one piece of footage, but all it did was confirm what we already knew, that Trevor had been walking down Imogene Crescent around 3pm. No footage showed if he had gotten into a car, if he walked to a specific location, or anything else of value. The next step was for the RNC to pull travel records for flight and ferry travel since the time that Trevor disappeared. No one by the name of Trevor Hamlin had taken a flight or ferry off of Newfoundland since the day he disappeared, and when CCTV cameras on the ferry and in the airport were checked, no one stuck out as looking like Trevor. Also, this is 2018, so you can't really go anywhere without an ID. If you're flying within Canada, you don't need your passport. But you still need some sort of ID, so I don't see any way he would have gotten on a flight. And also, taking the ferry between Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, you still need ID. So it's hard to believe that he would have found a way to get off the island. The RNC received a tip that someone believed that they saw Trevor boarding the Bell Island Ferry. This led to searches of Bell Island and questioning of staff and residents of Bell Island, and in the end, this also proved fruitless. I'm not familiar with the travel between Newfoundland and Bell Island, but I have a feeling you would also need IDs to do that. The investigation started going cold at this point, and search efforts began to decline, but Trevor's family maintained a constant search. His sister and his brother Jeff both took time off work to conduct their own searches. While the odds of finding Trevor safe and healthy seemed low, something happened that made people wonder what was really happening here. Not long after Trevor disappeared, a friend of his sent out a Snapchat to a group which he was part of, at this point in time, no one had heard anything from Trevor, and his current cell phone wasn't on him. Despite that, he opened that Snapchat. He never replied, but he opened it. This was the first and last activity he was known to have on any social media since the time of his disappearance. 
Despite this random blip of activity, it really didn't go anywhere, and once again, things started to peter off. Trevor's family continued their searches, however, hoping that they would possibly find something that could bring him home. It was during one of their private searches that they found something that was huge. On June 25th, Trevor's family conducted a group search of an area that they had looked through before just in case something new came up, or if they had missed something. While looking, they stumbled upon one of Trevor's possessions. During the search, the team located Trevor's cell phone. Once it was found, the RNC was contacted immediately, and they came to collect the device. Following the collection, the RNC dispatched search dogs, drones, and a search party to scour the area for any other evidence, but these searches came up empty. The phone that had been recovered was identified by Trevor's family as his old cell phone, one that he hadn't used for a little while. When the phone was investigated, no evidence was found on the device, and no DNA evidence was located anywhere on it. The location where the phone was found had been searched thoroughly before, and Trevor's sister Ashley said that there was no way that they had accidentally passed by it. For that reason, and the fact that the phone wasn't his current cell phone, she believes that this device was planted for some reason. I would assume that his old phone must have been logged into his Snapchat account, and that's why the Snapchat he received had been opened. I believe that if someone else had Trevor's phone, they opened the Snapchat to make it look like Trevor was still active online. They couldn't snap back because they weren't him. If it is in fact Trevor with the phone, then maybe he accidentally opened the snap. Without any other information on the device, it ended up not giving much to the investigation. Just another confounding piece of potential evidence. On June 29th, four days after the old cell phone was found, the RNC received another tip in the case. This time, it led to a public hiking trail in the area known as Trail's End. This tip led the RNC to bring in drones, dogs, and a search team, but once again, the search turned up nothing. After this tip, things really began to die off. There were a few tips here and there, but nothing substantial and nothing that brought the investigation any closer to finding Trevor. As of today, there are no further updates in the case, and it remains pretty much in the same place where it began. The RNC are hoping to receive information on who Trevor had been hanging out with prior to his disappearance because they seem to be the most likely people to know where Trevor is today. Seeing as Paradise is a small town, I feel the people that Trevor was hanging out with must not have been from the area. They most likely came from St. John's, which is a much larger city, and not knowing people there is much more understandable. Today, Trevor's family still hopes for answers on what happened to him back in June of 2018. They generally believe that foul play was involved. Trevor's sister Ashley said that she feels she doesn't know who she can trust anymore because she doesn't know who could be involved in Trevor's disappearance or who could know something and just won't say it. If you or anyone you know 
has information on this case or the disappearance of Daniel Pickett, please contact the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. All contact information for them can be found on their website, www.rnc.gov.nl.ca. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shalee Musso. You can listen to this episode and all other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. You can find Shades of Crime on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. For more information on this case and other cases covered, as well as information on the podcast, check out our blog at shadesofcrime.ca. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.